Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all-music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is John M. Borak, the author of The Beatles 100, 100 Pivotal Moments in Beatles History. Welcome, John. Oh, Steve, thanks. It's great to be here. First off, congratulations on your book. I imagine it's incredibly hard to offer up a new take on the Beatles, but I do think your book fills the bill. Well, thank you. It was a long road to get it published, but I'm grateful that it's out there uh, in the world now. It's kind of like watching your child get born, and then, <laughs> you know, unlike a child, you, you hope people like the book. Everyone <laughs> likes children. Not everyone likes all the books, but I, I'm just grateful that people... Uh, seem to be enjoying it. And yeah, I did try to offer up a little bit of a different take because there are so many Beatles books out there, but I didn't really see any like this one, uh, which ranks the top 100 moments in Beatles history, not only musical, but other moments as well, and also looks at their solo careers as well as their career as a group. Well, I have to step back because you did offer up just a, a wonderful metaphor as your child, and uh, I absolutely loved the forward of your book as my personal history sort of mirrors yours closely. Give our listeners the dime version Beatles journey you had as a child, and then on up to the father of a child who is also a Beatles fan. Wow. Well, I think I was five years old, maybe six years old, and uh, my dad bought me my first Beatles record. It was the All You Need Is Love and Baby, You're a Rich Man, 45. And from then on, my obsession just took off. You know, I didn't really start appreciating them until I was a teenager. And then, of course, I, I had to work backwards because this was the mid-70s. Had to work backwards, you know, towards, you know, collecting all the original U.S. albums and U.K. albums. But, you know, once I started doing that and listening to uh, the music, I just became a huge fan of the music and the people and, and everything. It's been quite a journey, but, you know, my, my dad sort of... Uh, began that journey for me by purchasing me all these Beatles records, even though he didn't really care for the group so much. He was more old school in that regard, but 
you know, he sort of helped feed my obsession and I'll be forever grateful to him for that. And you did the same with your daughter though, correct? Yeah, both my kids are uh, Beatles fans. Uh, my daughter is going to be 24, and she has seen Paul McCartney with me in concert, I think, four times now. Hmm. And we will be going for number five here in Los Angeles in May uh, at SoFi Stadium. Wow. And my son also enjoys the Beatles, not quite to the extent that my daughter does, but he likes the group too. You know, he's got some Beatles posters I've uh, given him hanging in his room. i Came home one day and heard this, um, heard the sound of Blackbird you know, coming from his room, the little acoustic guitar. And I'm like, wow, he's listening to Blackbird. And I went into his bedroom and he was actually playing it oh, wow. on his acoustic guitar. And I said, how did you, how did you learn that? And of course his answer was like a lot of young people, oh, it's on the internet. I just <laughs> learned how to learn, learned how to, you know, play it by watching YouTube. So yeah, it's, it's great to be able to share that passion that I have with my kids and particularly with my daughter, which is what I talk about in the foreword, where we saw Paul McCartney's final concert of his last tour, which was at Dodger Stadium, and Ringo Starr came out on stage. Yeah. I get chills just talking about Amazing. it. Ringo Starr came out on stage, and my daughter and I were both there. We hope you both started to cry, and oh, it was just an amazing moment. Amazing. Well, I saw Paul with my daughter at Fenway Park here in Boston, and uh, it's a weird thing to say, but I'm proud to say now that she has seen him more than I have. So <laughs> oh, that's I great. did my job, I think. That's great. Yeah. Let me ask you this. How did you come up with the concept of this book? Because there's a lot of historical books on the Beatles, but this is one person's list and one person's perspective in that order. Well, I've always been a list maker. You know, I write for Goldmine Magazine, a record collector's publication. I'm a contributing editor there. And every year I would, uh, you know, make my top 20 list of, uh, of albums of the year and put it up there. Uh, I've written a couple of books on the topic of power pop. And, you know, one was the top 200 power pop albums ranked in order. And, you know, for better or worse, people love lists. They like to uh, agree with them or disagree with them, uh, but it always sparks a lot of discussion. So I thought, well, why not combine my love for list making with my love for the Beatles? I don't think anyone's ever approached things from this angle before. So that's how the, uh, the idea came, came to be. I could have done 100 moments on the Beatles as a group, just as it was. But I thought, why not include the solo years and make right. it sort of all encompassing? And that's sort of, uh, that's sort of how, it, how it came to pass. Well, it's genius. And, and I'll mention to our listeners, um, to that end, there's a great quote on the inside flap that states that you have, quote, created a book to agree with and disagree with. So everyone read this and <laughs> dig in because it's it's really wired that way. And that's really part of the fun of it. Yeah, you know, it was the publisher who came up with that uh, line, a book to agree with and disagree with. But that but that's exactly what it is, mm -hmm. you know. No one is going to read the Beatles 100 and agree with all of the rankings. Uh, you know, I've, I've done interviews where I spent a good portion of the interviews trying to defend yeah. <laughs> my, my ranking of, of certain items here. And how could you put that ahead of that? And how could you put that <laughs> ahead of that? And, you know, it's one person's list, like you said. And if I were to make this list again now, it would probably be a lot different. I know <laughs> it would be a lot different. It would have been different if I would have made it you know, one day after I sent the manuscript in, just because things change, feelings change. And, but you know, it's, it's just supposed to be in good fun. You know, it's, it's not supposed to be, here's what the top 100 moments are. I'm right. You're wrong. And this is it. <laughs> it's something to kind of have a discussion about. And, and that's what, uh, what makes it sort of fun for me. 
it's like the perfect Friday night at the local pub with your music buddies and just going back and forth. And, you know, one of the things that makes this so much fun is the brevity of each moment. They're only a few pages long, so it's really a compelling and easy read. And I'm curious, was that intentional? Well, it was. Uh, if I would have gone too long with 100 moments, you right. know, the, the book as it is, is 200 and some pages. I would have, you know, ended up with <laughs> a nine volume work here. I thought, I thought it was good to sort of keep it brief and to the point. What I tried to do was make this a book that a casual Beatles fan or someone who was, un, who was really not aware of the group so much in their history, they would enjoy it. But I also tried to make it interesting for people who are longtime fans of the Beatles or the solo Beatles. And one way I tried to do that was by including some quotes that you don't see all the time. And that involved doing a lot of research online, reading a lot of other Beatles books, you know, watching videos uh, of John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Ringo Starr being interviewed. You know, there's some great interviews on YouTube that people might not be aware of. For example, you know, John Lennon talking about the tracks on Abbey Road one by one and mm. giving his own personal take on all of them. You know, not a lot of people are aware that that's out there. If you're, you know, a, a casual to, you know, middling Beatles fan, similar thing. There's an interview with Paul McCartney, a radio interview that he did in 1968 after the White Album came out, where he discusses all of the tracks on the White Album. So, you know, I, I tried to dig a little deeper and not only offer my perspective, but give people some quotes and information they might not see all the time. That's one of my favorite parts of your book, because the quotes set it up really well and, and from different angles, different levels, whether you agree with, you know, what that particular moment is or not. I thought the quotes just added so, so much. And I look forward to getting to the next quote. So, You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're speaking with John M. Borak. He's the author of The Beatles 100, 100 Pivotal Moments in Beatles History. So let me ask you, well, actually two million-dollar questions. I was going to say the million-dollar questions, but there's two of them. So the first one is, what and how was your process in deciding what moments to include? Well, some were relatively easy. 
obviously the probably the top 20 were ones that you would imagine would would be included you know John Lennon meeting Paul McCartney, the Beatles coming to America, uh, Ringo Starr joining the band, that sort of thing. In terms of some of the other things, it was just things I thought were were interesting about the band. Um, relationships, marriages, certain singles being released, certain solo records being released. You know, every solo record is not covered in there, but I think the more the more compelling ones are and the ones that I feel are interesting from a historical per- perspective, like Ram, for example, Paul Linda McCartney's album Ram, got ravaged by the critics when it was originally released in 1971. Even Ringo Starr, and I think this quote might even be in the chapter, I'm not sure, but he said, I, I don't hear a single tune on there. Wow. Which is, is more, uh, you know, speaks more to Ringo's relationship with Paul at the time than it does to the music that was included on Ram. But look at some of the uh, records from more of a historical perspective and talk about those. You know, I just started making the list and then, you know, changing the list, putting it in order and then reordering it and then re-reordering it <laughs> back and forth and back and forth. And, you know, a lot of them were obvious. Some are not so obvious, but I tried to just give an overall perspective of the band and the solo Beatles. Yeah. And that was my second million dollar question. And you answered that uh, with how, how you ordered it. But I have to ask, like, did you wait to order it until you had all hundred or did you do it as you go along and then kind of mix it up? I know it was pretty fluid. No, I waited until I had all 100 moments and then put them in order. I, I knew what number one was going to be. And that was? <laughs> and I knew what number 100 was going to be, <laughs> which is kind of funny. We'll talk about those. <laughs> so let me just ask you this then. Was coming up with 100 moments easier than you thought or harder? I mean, that, that's, you know, it doesn't sound like a big number, but it is. Well, you know, it wasn't difficult coming up with 100 moments because I probably could have come up with another 100. Hmm. I could probably write a sequel, you know, a <laughs> hundred more pivotal moments, but it was more ordering things, uh, you know, putting things in order and, and just deciding, well, is this more important than that? Or is this more important than that? And then when you get to around, you know, well, is 35 more important than 36 or is 38 <laughs> more important than 40? It, it all sort of kind of runs together a little bit. But, you know, it was just a matter of getting those moments I wanted to write about that I thought were important and then putting them in some semblance of what I felt the importance was uh, in the history of the band. And, and it's really important to point out that it is not a uh, continuum or, you know, a narrative, you know, in time. It, it's all over the place. Right. It's the moment that you focus on, not when it happened. Right. It, it is not in chronological order. And I mention that in every interview I do. I mention that every time I speak to somebody. It's mentioned in all the publicity and press for the book. And I still have people said... Why is it not in order? Well, it's it's not supposed to be in order. If you want a biography of the band, there's a million of those out there by people who are far more accomplished than I am. You know, there was no need to reinvent the wheel, as it were. So I, I just wanted to offer a little, you know, bit of a different perspective. And I think that's what I did. As straight up your perspective, too, which is really interesting. And you mentioned a couple of the chapters. Number one, as you mentioned, was pretty obvious. Yeah, number one, uh, I don't feel I'm going to be uh, spoiling things too much, but number <laughs> one was when John Lennon met Paul McCartney. There would be no Beatles. You know, we wouldn't even be having this discussion. Uh, there would be no book if John hadn't met Paul. That's what sort of kicked everything off. The interesting thing I found in some of my research was that everyone assumes they met for the first time in the summer of 1957 when um, John and his group, the Quarrymen, were playing in Woolton um, on this. Um, 
outdoor sort of mobile stage. But looking back, I've, I've found some quotes from Mark Lewison, who's a noted oh, yeah. Beatles historian, saying that, you know, they might have met earlier. Hmm. John and Paul might have met earlier and even exchanged a few words, you know, a year previous in a uh, fish and chip shop or something. But yeah, that was that was the big one. That's where it all began. And then, of course, Paul brought George into the group. And then a few years later, Ringo joined. And then we were off to the races. Off indeed. And it, so is it fair to say my perspective or my gut reaction was that chapter two kind of set up everything that follows just because of the size and the uh, effect that the Beatles had? Yeah. The, and chapter two talks about um, the Beatles coming to America, which sort of kicked off worldwide Beatlemania. I mean, they were obviously already pretty popular in the UK and in Europe uh, throughout 1963. They had had some big hits. They had released their first full length album already. You know, 1964 is where it really all began on a worldwide level where, you know, Beatlemania first began and things just kind of ramped up and went to a whole nother level of amazing, you know, just some amazing times. I wish I would have been there. Yeah, no kidding. So you mentioned number 100, and I have to say, I did not see this coming at all. (laughs) And when I read the title, I was like, what? And when I read it, it was just so perfect. Can you explain that? Yeah, uh, Chapter 100 was about the uh, Beatles parody act called the Ruddles. And <laughs> um, it's it's just, a, it's a, you know, for, for those of your listeners who aren't familiar, it, there was a movie released. Uh, it was produced by one of the uh, guys, I think, who had something to do with Saturday Night Live back in the 70s. I think it was on TV originally, television mo- movie called All You Need Is Cash, <laughs> which, of course, is a takeoff on All You Need Is Love. The Ruddles just parodied the Beatles' history. They were parodied so perfectly in that movie. And then there was, of course, a soundtrack album where the songs were very close to, you know, some Beatles songs, but just a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So as, you know, you know, you, you wouldn't say, oh, that's exactly the same as this certain Beatles song. But, uh, you know, there were some members of, of Monty Python involved. Uh, George Harrison was a big Monty Python fan. He actually went on to produce some Monty Python films in the uh, 80s. Eric Idle was involved from Monty Python. George was a big fan of of the Ruddles and of the movie. He actually appears in the movie. Mm. So, you know, that sort of uh, gave it his blessing. And, um, yeah, I just thought it was kind of a fun way to uh, to wrap things up. Definitely. And I think Harrison also said at some point that that's what he loved about it, because there's no more to say about the Beatles. So the Ruddles was kind of this just a a perfect ending. And and it really is, you know, it really is. Yeah. Yeah. It it was it was just sort of, you know, hey, we're we're human and we can be lampooned also. (laughs) We're not these gods that are untouchable. You know, let people make fun of us, you know. It's fine. And the music, you know, really, really good stuff there. Pretty damn close. And, you know, you know, being made fun of sometimes makes you more lovable as well. So uh, it was a great ending. And uh, you know, I want to talk about a couple of uh, chapters. I don't want to give too much away, but there are a hundred of them. There are actually two of ones that appear early on, and they are about John. And they are both earth-shaking. Mm. Can you talk about those and specifically the order they appear and why you thought that was the order? Well... You know, John meeting Yoko, uh, let me see, I think that's chapter 10. That was important in not only the history of the Beatles, but, you know, John is a solo act. You know, Yoko affected everything he did from being there, sitting on the amp when they were recording uh, the Let It Be record, constantly being by his side to sort of, you know, letting him go to L.A. where he uh, had his... uh, 
quote unquote lost weekend uh, in 1973 to getting back together. And, and, you know, of course they, they had Sean in 1975 and then the comeback album, double fantasy in, in 1980, you know, Yoko is a constant presence. Right. And, you know, she, I think she gets kind of a bad rap from a lot of Beatles fans, honestly. Mm-hmm. But, you know, my perspective was John loved her. She brought out a lot of good in him. And, you know, who is anyone to say that's right or wrong? It's his own personal choice on what he wanted to do in terms of a relationship. And But I think it was definitely important to the uh, overall history of not only the, the band, but John as a solo musician. Uh, of course, the other chapter you you mentioned, and I I have a policy never to mention um, John's assassin by name, just because he doesn't deserve any notoriety at all. That chapter, of course, that was the end of so many things. Not only the end of of course of of John's life, sadly, but you know the end of an era, the end of a chapter. You know the Beatles could never regroup. You know really with all four of them. It, Again, you know, I'm getting chills just talking about this. It was just such a sad time. And I remember when it happened. And it was like someone punching you in the gut if, if you were a Beatles fan. Or just, you know, even as a human being, for someone to be so senselessly taken away like that, so randomly, it was, it was awful. Again, though, I, I feel I did have to cover it because it was a huge part of the Beatles story. Yeah. And, you know, I will say I remember that as well. And uh, I think that was my freshman year at college and finding out from Howard Cosell uh, was not a lot of fun. Uh, I think that he announced that to a lot of people. He did. And that's how I found out about it. I was Mm. watching the football game, you know, and I was in college, first year in college, you know, writing a paper for my sociology class. You know, it's one of those things where people remember where they were when they heard about these things. Exactly. Yeah, I remember I was sitting at my kitchen table. And I heard Cosell announce the news and I thought, well, this must be some kind of a mistake or, and at first he just said he was shot. So I thought, well, hopefully he'll, you know, he'll, he'll be okay. And then, you know, it was just so surreal hearing it that way. And from Howard Cosell, who incidentally had interviewed John Lennon on a number of occasions mm. and, and spoken to him, uh, you know, once John and Yoko moved to New York, but yeah, it was just a very, very, very sad day. You know, and to be fair to John and Yoko, Paul's relationship with Linda figures prominently as well, as does George's doomed relationship with Patty Boyd. I do have to say, if I'm going to single out one line in your book that made me laugh out loud, I'd probably have to go with George's husband-in-law statement. Oh. (laughs) It was just hysterical. Yeah, you know, that was a whole nother, uh, that was a whole nother thing. I, I think there's a chapter in there where I talk about George and Patty and Eric Clapton, and it was just a bizarre situation. You know, how often do you see that sort of thing happening where, you know, someone leaves a super famous, you know, husband and, and then ends up with another super famous husband who's in the same exact industry and the two are friends and they play the same instrument and they've recorded together. And, and, you know, later on they would tour together. Uh, Yeah. It was a strange situation, particularly when, you know, on one of George's solo albums in the uh, seventies, he uh, recorded a version of, of Bye Bye Love, the Everly Brothers song and changed the lyrics to talk about his relationship with Patty and Eric Clapton. You know, I think it was probably more uncomfortable for everyone else than it was for him. (laughs) Wow, I did not know that. I'm going to have to go listen to that one. Honestly, it's a really lousy version of of the song. He slows it down and sort of twists the melody around. And I think I I actually have the lyrics here. Uh, 
oh yeah and, and you know instead of there goes my baby with someone new which is how it starts george sings there goes our lady with you know who i hope she's happy <laughs> old clapper too and then it, he ends with then she stepped in did me a favor i threw them both out wow <laughs> and you know you listen to that and you're just tmi there george i, I don't know mm. The husband-in-law statement came after Patty married Clapton, and he said, I guess I'm the husband-in-law, which is dark and funny yeah. at the same time. Yeah, and you know, and, and that was George. He had sort of a wicked sense of humor mm. and, and found humor in a lot of things that where other people might not have, uh, might not have. We're speaking with John M. Borak, the author of The Beatles 100, 100 Pivotal Moments in Beatles History. So Let It Be gets two chapters, one for the fractious sessions and one for the release of Let It Be Naked, which stripped out Phil Spector's strings. Your book actually was released in 2021 and mentions the upcoming film, although that film would be delayed due to COVID. I'm assuming you've seen the film. I'm, I'm just wondering, did that affect or change or give you different thoughts as to your two chapters here? Well, you know, at first I thought like everyone else did, you know, the, the narrative was the Beatles were in a horrible state uh, during the recording of Let It Be. They all hated each other. George walked out and John was arguing with Paul. John was on drugs and Paul was being uh, the dominant one and no one else liked that. And it was just miserable. And if you watch the Let It Be movie, it sort of plays into that narrative, the original movie. The original, right. It's such a stark looking movie it's it's difficult to watch honestly if you're a beatles fan and remember the good days and, and the happy times. so i was a bit worried when the new get back movie came out because that sort of flipped the narrative completely on its side and no they weren't arguing they were happy look here they are here they are smiling and laughing and joking and you know john lennon is is making all these uh, quips and and everyone's having a great time and at first I thought, wow, that's really going to, you know, make me seem dumb saying how these sessions were, you know, everyone was really uptight. And then I thought, you know what, honestly, like with most things, the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. I don't think they were as miserable as, you know, they were made out to be. But in the new Get Back film, I don't think things were as hunky-dory and rosy as, as Peter Jackson made it out to be. As someone who's worked in television, Editing can completely, you know, change the story. Right, right. And so you, you can include what you want to include and take out what you don't want people to see. And, you know, Peter Jackson is, is a filmmaker. And I'm sure that somebody told him, you know, when he went in, we don't want to see the original Let It Be movie. We want to see some happy stuff, you know. This thing aired on Disney Plus, for God's sake. So, right. <laughs> you know. We didn't want to see all the, all this negative uh, all this negative crap and all this fighting and, and and everything else. We wanted to see some good times, and it was good to see that. So I don't think it really changes my opinion so much of, of what went on during that time. There were some good times. There there were some bad times. Uh, but overall, the music is what is paramount to the story. I think, um, and the music still sounds great. Yeah, definitely. And that's a really interesting point about editing and changing the narrative. And that, that first version of the movie, which was so dark, it's amazing. A lot of people are just adamant, you know, that Let It Be was their last record. They don't realize that Abbey Road came after that, which sounds so fun and happy, you know? After Abbey Road, there's interviews out there with both John and George where they talk about the next record. So, you know, mm -hmm. there was no thought while they were making Abbey Road that this is it, guys. 
Right. You know, they, they didn't know it was it. You know, they thought they were going to continue. You know, George had talked about, you know, making solo records, but, you know, still remaining a member of the Beatles and doing what he did with the four of them. So, yeah, it wasn't planned, you know, months, years in advance. It, it just sort of happened. And, you know, everyone is looking, looking for things to, uh, you know, point fingers at. Well, this led to this, and this led to this, and this led to this. Right, well, right. you know, it, it, it may have all happened that way eventually, but I don't think it was all planned, you know, years in advance. There's so many fun and fascinating events in the book, and it's it's just a great book to pick up and put down. And like you just said, it's almost like a breadcrumbs on a trail because these are so short that get you thinking about the Beatles and all these really important points. And if that's not enough, too, you have favorite solo track lists at the end, and those are a ton of fun. And again, I'm sure, you know, at the corner bar or whatever, you have people coming up and telling you pick the wrong tracks. Oh, of course. Yeah. How could you not pick X? You know, how could you not pick this? Because it's my favorite track. Well, I'm glad it's your favorite track. It's it's not my favorite track, you know, but whatever. But yeah, I did a list of uh, my 10 favorite. You know, I made sure not to call it the 10 best. Right. My 10 favorite Beatles songs. You know, five sort of under the radar John Lennon solo tracks, Ringo's top 10 solo tracks, George's, and then Paul McCartney's. And a lot of people would be surprised at my number one there because everyone or most people sort of point to maybe I'm amazed as Paul's pinnacle. And of course, it is a great song, mm-hmm. classic song. And it was number four in my top 10. But my number one McCartney solo track is Junior's Farm. And if you had to ask me why, I couldn't really put my finger on why. I've just always loved it. It's not completely overplayed like a lot of Paul's other solo tracks that you hear all the time. It's got some great guitar work. It's got some really bizarre and sort of cheeky lyrics. And it's it, it rocks like hell. And it's always been my favorite. It's, it's definitely a good one. You also wrote another book, John Lennon, Life is What Happens. Yeah. Tell us real quickly about that one. Okay, well, that came out in uh, 2010. That was to coincide with what would have been John's 70th birthday and also the 30th anniversary of his unfortunate assassination. That was a, sort of a biography, but it was subtitled Music, Memories, and Memorabilia. Hmm. So I talked a lot about the music John had created with the Beatles and Solo. Talked to a lot of, of different people, some who were musicians who were influenced by him. Some were musicians who worked with him. I talked to a couple of the double fantasy session musicians and some who just loved his music. For example, this is kind of bizarre, but I talked to Susan Olson, who played Cindy Brady on The Brady Bunch. <laughs> you know, just as an example of, of someone who loved the Beatles. And, you know, you wouldn't think about it, obviously. But so that was the uh, memories part of the equation. It was published by the same company that uh, at the time that owned Goldmine Magazine. They dealt with a lot of memorabilia publications. So there's a lot of photos of rare memorabilia uh, down through the years, lunchboxes and thermoses and picture sleeves and albums and, and whatnot. That came out in 2010. That was the first book I wrote about the Beatles and um, a lot of fun to do. Some of the birth of merch, even uh, with the Beatles, and and, and, you, and you know, if you think about the Beatles and the Brady Bunch, uh, that was a good slice of history for a lot of kids' time, you know. Oh well, you know, I I grew up watching the Brady Bunch, and then you know, things always kind of turn full circle in in life. Now I play drums in, in a lot of bands. Oh, wow. uh, one of them is actually a Beatles cover band called Let It Be, and I get to fulfill my uh, my Ringo fantasy. 
So I get to go up there and play Beatles songs and just grin like mad because I just love doing it. <laughs> I'm also in a band called the Test Pressings. One of the folks in that band along with me is a gentleman named Robbie Rist. And Robbie played Cousin Oliver oh, wow. on the last season of The Brady Bunch. I remember him well. <laughs> All kind of ties in full circle. He's a super talented singer, songwriter. So yeah, so that band is me and Robbie and a young lady named Karen Bassett, who was in a band called the Pandoras back in the 80s. Well, listen, speaking of tying things together, last question. We've uh, talked to one of the authors, and we're going to be speaking to his co-author of a book on power pop. And I know that you know those two authors well as well. So although the Beatles are certainly foundational, there's a lot of dissension amongst power poppers if you can consider the Beatles actually power pop. What say you? Uh, no, the, the Beatles were not a power pop band. The Beatles served as one of the blueprints for power pop, certainly. You know, Peter Townsend coined the term in 1966, Peter Townsend of The Who, uh, in an interview, you know, power pop is what we play. That's what he said. And of course, The Who back then were, were doing songs like Substitute and, and songs that had a lot of really forceful guitar and harmonies. And, and you know, a lot of the stuff that The Beatles did, um, you know, if it were to be done today, it would certainly be called power pop tracks like Anytime at All and Please Please Me and on and on and on. Yeah, they were sort of the uh, forerunners of, of power pop bands like the three Bs that people talk about from the 60s, the Beatles, the Beach Boys and the Birds. You know, you put influences from all those bands together, especially in their early years, particularly, and you sort of get the formula for power pop. Three minute songs, lots of jangly guitar, lots of vocal harmonies. That's sort of what it is. But it's funny because I'm sure when you talk to uh, talk to the folks who wrote the book, they'll they'll uh, mention to you about power pop, how people argue about is this band power pop? Is this <laughs> band not power pop? And one of the funnier ones is, is there's some people who insist that the band Kiss is power. Oh, right. Pop. Right. That's a good story, too. They may they may be powerful and they may be pop music. But they're not power pop. <laughs> it's a whole different thing. That seems to, to be right on the money. Listen, I want to thank you for joining us. John M. Borak, The Beatles 100, 100 Pivotal Moments in Beatles History. It's a great read. It's a brand new book, just out for a few months. And, you know, I would recommend it to everybody. It's, it's a really fun, short read. You know, you can put it down, pick it up. And uh, congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. And, you know, I love talking about the Beatles whenever I can. So this has really been a treat. If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 